Tuesday night, and we've got a brand new episode of Graphic Policy Radio, the show that mixes comics and politics. But we're talking a comic offshoot tonight. We're discussing Black Panther, which is dominating movie theaters, setting records all across the world. Uh, basically, it's, it's what everyone's talking about and everyone's seeing in the movie theaters. Uh, February, second best film for Marvel film ever. Uh, I believe it's the highest opening ever for a film. Uh, just praise critics, fans, viewers, comic fans, non-comic fans, and all of that, uh, combining action with deep themes with a thought-making adventure. Uh, before we introduce our guests, I want to kick it to our co-host, Alana. How are you doing? Great. Um, I, I just came off of a Black Panther fan activist con where we had a whole crew of fans of the movie and racial justice organizations participating in an online convening together where we made like a bajillion gifts about the political context of the movie, which you can all check out now actually on Giphy. Like if you go and you look at Black Panther gifts, some of those gifts might have been made by racial justice activists. Um, and uh, also you can check them out if you look up uh, the hashtag fan activist con on Giphy or anything like that. Um, and uh, I we're planning a big Twitter tweet chat event that's going to happen actually like literally a week from now it's going to be on the at nine o'clock eastern february 28th uh it's going to be led uh, by um amazing right an amazing uh organizer stephanie collier from the black worker justice center and she's uh going to be hosting a tweet chat between black panther fans and racial justice activists and i really encourage you guys to participate in that on twitter um at nine o'clock next week I know Graphic Policy will retweet some of it, so you will be able to find us. And I'm really excited to have our guests joining me today. Um, they are a couple of my uh, favorite critics when it comes to talking about um, comics and politics, and certainly folks whose Black Panther criticism, uh, uh, analysis and writing has just been, like, super exciting for me to read. So, All right. So I'll introduce our guest and then dive into the discussion, which – I know we've all got tons to talk about. Uh, Clark Kishant is a Nigerian-American bisexual blurred, uh, snark mage, and a cultural critic written for The Root, Establishment, BET, Into, and based on her superhero persona. Her episodes include Alina Dum, which is legit, Frillo, which I don't <laughs> want to know about that one, and Taylor Swift, yeah. uh, amen on that one. All right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm surrounded by Swift right fans. Back. I'm totally with you. <laughs> Charles Pullman Moore is a staff writer at IO9, where, where he covers comics and genre culture with the focus on race, representation, and queer identity. Welcome to the show, both of you. Thanks so much. Thanks Thank for having, having us. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Yay. So, I sort of wanted to open up with a question about what was each of you, your experiences like seeing the movie in, 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 the, in the first place? Uh, what was your experience of like being in the theater and being in that space? Because I know that that's been a really big aspect of the movie for a lot of folks. Clark, you should feel free to go first. Okay, all right. I was going to ask you, like, do you want to go first? <laughs> but, um, <laughs> yeah, so I'll, yeah, I'll go first. Um, so it was, I, there were two concerns when I was going to go. Um, like I mentioned before the broadcast started, I'm based in East Tennessee which if you hadn't guessed is very, very white. <laughs> so I was worried about finding a theater where I was like, because I knew watching Black Panther was going to be a very important community experience for Black people. So I was very um, set on finding a theater where I could have the experience. Luckily, our downtown theater, that's that's what happened. Like, there was a lot of 
um, different black people, different cultures, different um, um, heritage, and then also a lot of POC that showed up, so that was good. Um, going to the actual theater that night was wild because even though we had pre-ordered tickets, it was just so packed that mm. I almost had to sit in, like, the very front row, bro. Mm. So, like, I'm literally, like, looking to John in his face. Like, he's sweating on me. Like, I was right there in the screen. But um, <laughs> it was just such a really good ex- – I almost want to say spiritual experience being in that theater, sharing it with all these people, the running commentary, um, the laughter, um, the tears, too, because it's just, it's, just, uh, it's just something is just very overdue. Um, so yeah, that first time I went definitely was just akin to like almost a baptism, I would say, just to mm. get baptized with that 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 cultural experience that we've been missing out for, on for a while. Because you know, um, some of these companies don't want to bet on black, and that's that's kind of the reality of it. So um, yeah, sort of. To, my my experience was really similar um, to yours. The the techn- like the technical first time that I saw it was a you know a press screening and that was very much like in a professional capacity. And so I don't really consider you know the, my first real time seeing it. my my first real time seeing it um, was um, going down to uh, my Magic Johnson Theater in Harlem. You know going to mm-hmm. a sold out you know predominantly black showing and really sort of being able to bask in the experience of experiencing the movie with other people, with other black people. Um, it was so moving. Isn't really, it doesn't, it's not quite the right word. I need something a little bit more powerful than that, but to see this lush, rich world that is so deeply ensconced and rooted in blackness fully realized on the screen, you know, to see it treated with such loving care, both in terms of how the film itself is crafted from like a narrative perspective, from a visual perspective, but also to just sort of see, um, to see like black Hollywood excellence all rallying um, around this movie. It's, it's, it's wild to see, you know, Angela Bassett and all of her and regality, you know, becoming the queen of Wakanda, you know, before your eyes, you know, it's, it's, it's so powerful to see Forrest Whitaker, you know, lending his talents to this. Um, It is in a very real sense, like a culmination of a very particular kind of like cinematic blackness all in one space Mm -hmm. that is so powerful to see, you know? I agree. That's fabulous. Yeah. Yeah. And you guys are both, uh, you know, you're both comic book fans coming at this from that perspective as well. So, you know, Mm -hmm. I I think like one of the things that has been really cool to hear from folks who are sort of at the intersection of comic book fandom and like approaching this from a social conscious perspective is like hearing from folks about sort of the ways that having the black creative team be in the driver's seat for this movie Mm -hmm. um, on all levels was really able to shape it in a really important way. And I wasn't sure if you guys wanted to kind of flesh that out a little bit. Like what are the things that you feel like you got from the movie that were specifically put in there because it was coming from a black experience and not just on the screen, but behind it. One of the things that's so impressive about this movie um, and really sort of does demonstrate the transformative power of actually putting, you know, marginalized people in positions of power. Um, Black Panther is at the end of the day, it is a Marvel movie, right? Like you, you won't mistake this for some kind of like uniquely auteur work that exists outside of the Marvel brand, 
But at the same time, um, the messaging, the social commentary about um, a multiplicity of black experiences is also very present within the film, right? And that is, you know, mm-hmm. the direct result of having, you know, it's not just right, you know, the, the entirety of the, the black mm-hmm. production team behind this film, you know, because they're coming at this project with a very particular kind of experience and focus and lens, um, it translates directly to the film. You're not going to, like, what other, I, I can't, I, I'm struggling to really think of any other kind of movie that hits that perfect intersection between um, mass or like broad audience appeal, um, but is also mm-hmm. making a very poignant and um, a poignant and important and like difficult message about, um, you know, the black experience. That's wild. Um, and just as a comic book nerd, because it really does like scratch all of, you know, my, my Black Panther, like, geek needs, it just makes it that much more <laughs> impressive that the film manages to be all of these things. You know, it is a Hollywood blockbuster. It is, you know, it is a total Black service, uh, like Black Panther fan service film. And it is also, you know, really sparking some important and deep conversations about Blackness um, in a very profound way. Yeah, I agree. I would jump in and say, um, uh, Ryan Coogler, first of all, like uh, one of my favorite directors by by far. Like I knew he was gonna go places when we saw Valley Station, and then yeah. from there he just kind of hit the ground running and just oh my god! Like <laughs> I know he's gonna have better movies than this, but like this has to be his best so far. Um, yeah. the movie like like Charles is saying like is. It does have mass mass appeal. It does have broad appeal. It is a blockbuster. But Ryan makes it so personal that I'm just kind of like, holy crap, is this a Marvel movie? Like, what? It, I don't, what? I, I was really like, there were points where I was just like, a character would say something, again, that's like just uniquely intrinsic to like black people. And I'd be like, wait, is this a Marvel movie? What? What? Right. And it reads as being something that's like, I I, I I hate it when people are like, oh, authenticity, but it's, there really is no better word for it. It's like, oh, black people wrote this, right? Like it's, right. You, you, you feel it and, you, and it doesn't read at all as, you know, some kind of like focus groups, like, oh, how do we get the blacks into the mm-hmm. theater? It's like, oh no, this is just, this is just, this is just black people talking. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I agree. I agree. And then um, another thing I noticed with, you know, like you said, like having black people in the driver's seat, a lot of these characters that were, like, really offensive, <laughs> like, 20, 30, 40 years ago, got refashioned um, into characters that are, you know, relevant and also mm. three-dimensional characters. Like, oh, my God, M'Baku. M'Baku. Right. <laughs> yeah, let's talk about you know, that. Was give, give our folks the background about him, because I'm sure some of our listeners don't know that history. Uh, okay, so, yeah, Charles is going to have to help me. <laughs> but I'll, okay. I'll just start off by saying that um, the name, start off by his name, like, he's formerly referred to as Man-Ape, which, you know, probably has, you know, all sorts of, you know, racial and, and just offensive connotations. Um, but he, yeah, his character definitely isn't what we get in the movie. It's much different, but I'll, mm. I'm going to pass it over <laughs> to Charles, my background in Mbaku in particular is a little bit thin, so. No, 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 no. So, like, um, Mbaku in the comics is traditionally 
Um, he is the head of one of the rivaling tribes within Wakanda, um, a tribe that worships um, a gorilla god as opposed to the panther god that, you know, the heroic Wakandans do. Um, and he's usually adversarial, right? When he was originally created back in the original Black Panther, uh, he actually was, I want to say he was introduced in an Avengers comic, I'm pretty sure like in the late 60s. Um, he is um, a really big, strong guy who dresses up in a gorilla costume, right, to, to sort of double back on the Clarkisha's point. Um, the character was really, you know, ensconced in racist ideas. Um, you know, the Black Panther comic, you know, was uh, historic, but the fact that it was written by white men does show itself, right? Both in mm-hmm. good yeah. and bad ways. You know, you look back at, you know, T'Challa as he's originally introduced is like black, per- like in like uh, unrealizable black perfection, right? Um, he's a genius and he's an Olympian athlete and he comes from the most technologically advanced country in the world. And that's all really cool. But it's also sort of like an, it was an unrealistic representation of blackness that was supposed to sort of go against racist ideas, right? Um, actually, it's, it's, it's well-meaning, right? But it's kind of, it's, it's a little two-dimensional. Um, mm-hmm. And to sort of uh, echo that point with M'Baku, you know, Mane, uh, you literally put a black man in a, in, in a gorilla costume and turned him into an evil savage, right? Because uh, as they were originally introduced, the Jabari tribe, Hello? Ooh. Is, are folks still here? Yeah, I'm here. Hello? Okay, you're here. I'm here. And I think we just lost Charles. Yeah. Uh-oh. Okay, so we did just lose Charles. Um, let us uh, keep moving, and he will be back with us, I'm sure, momentarily. Um, uh, I was just going to say, Clarkisha, one of the pieces that you brought to the conversation – oh, Charles, you're back. Hey, sorry. Oh, okay, that was fast. So you were just talking about the history of the Jabari, and I know that I think it was Christopher Priest that first was like gave them a motivation to have a conflict in the first place. Like they had just been in, sort of been introduced as like here's some nemesises, and like Christopher Priest, right. who was I think the first black writer to write Black Panther, was like, how about they have a motivation for the clash, and it could be that they right. were a religious minority, and it was like, sure, people have motivations. Thank you, Christopher Priest, for bothering to do this, unlike the white people. Who are just like let's have black people fight for no reason. Yeah. Um, anyway. um, like as they were, you know, as they were originally, like as they originally, you know, realized the Jabari were similarly like these kind of like two-dimensional and like savage, um, you know, uh, rivals to the Wakandans. It was kind of like, eh, you know, it it it, it doesn't age well. But like to your point, Alana, as time has gone on and as black creatives have gotten their hands on these characters, they've given them nuance, right? They've complicated them. They've given them reasons for existing um, that resonate with readers and sort of reflect the reality of like the black experience. So you see the Jabari humanized during Christopher Priest's run and you see them even more humanized in uh... Hello? Oh no. I think we lost him again. Yes, we did. Okay. Clark uh, I want to ask you Definitely to talk about because you were you had an amazing piece you wrote about um, the skin color of the women in the movie uh, mm-hmm. and when we were just talking yes. about personal the personal aspects of the movie I'd love to hear you sort of bring that conversation to mm-hmm. folks here. Sorry, y'all. Yes, yes. Um, hey. 
Okay. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um. So yes, he wanted me to talk about the uh, the piece I wrote about the colorism, colorism. Yes, exactly. um, And how yeah. the film challenges that. Yes. Okay. Um. No, I was really excited to see who was getting casted in the film. You know, when it was still in pre-production. Um, yeah. I was also nervous about it because um, I was I didn't doubt for a second did you know that Ryan Cooler was going to pick the right man for the job because um, colorism works a little bit differently than you know for you know between women and men. Um, but as you know, as for casting women and casting the queen, the princess, the love interest, especially um, even the Dora Milaje, I was kind of like, you know. Um, I don't even want to say tradition, but uh, history and, you know, the um, especially the, the racial history of this country, um, social history of this country dictates that, you know, the casting might go in a certain direction, which would have been towards, you know, the expectation would have been towards life and actresses. Like I talked about in the piece where we saw it a lot with the X-Men franchise. Um, especially with Storm, character who is, you know, canonically um, dark-skinned, but that hasn't really translated to screen. And that happens, you know, more than we like to admit, more than we like to talk about. It happened with Vixen on the CW, with um, Arrow. Like, it happens a lot. So um, when I saw the casting happening and then, you know, saw the names, these characters being revealed, I was very shocked. Like, I was just like, I was not expecting it. Um... I was not expecting it. So to kind of see that happen and to see, um, you know, them with, you know, that level of dark skin, like they, they look like me, like they look like dark skin, um, but they're, they're multifaceted. Like they're playing these different, you know, roles, mother, princess, queen, love interest, the warrior, spy, like they're doing all these things. And on this kind of huge level, huge film, like we said, we keep mentioning the blockbuster, but it's a huge deal that mm. they're in these kind of roles in this kind of, like, on the scale. So, for that to have been happening, uh, it was a big deal. Like, a lot of people are just trying to say, okay, well, it was just a movie. Like, I wish you were just a movie, but it's not. <laughs> like, um. it is on one sense, but on the other side, like, this movie, quote-unquote, is just going to there's going to be, like, I have no doubt there's going to be a ripple, ripple effect across the, mm-hmm. the entertainment industry. Like, there has to be. Like, it's just done too much in actually just so little of time. Like, it just came out this past weekend. Like, it's done so much in so little of time that, like, right. man, there's no way that things don't move around because of it, um, including, you know, representation-wise, where we're, like, where we're, um, we're talking music, we're talking um, production, we're talking casting, Directing, too, like, um, it's just, yeah, there's just no way that, that things don't, pieces don't get moved around because of this movie. Um, so I, I just, yeah, I just, I'm really just pleased with Ryan. <laughs> I really <laughs> like, if I could, like, just shake his hand, I would do it. But, like, yeah, I just, I, was, I wasn't expecting it. I'm, I'm, I, I'm, I'm admittedly cynical about these kind of things. So I wasn't, at, like, I was waiting for it to go a certain way. I was still probably going to watch the movie because I've been a big fan of Charles for years, but I was going to feel a type of way. But, yeah, just he, the, he just blew my expectations out the water, and I'm just, I, I'm ready to go see it again, <laughs> essentially. So, 
to your point about yeah. like uh, to your point about a potential ripple effect, um, if we you know if we want to if we want to step away from like our emotional feelings and look at the facts of this, you know, uh, Marvel and you know Disney is in the business of making money, right? Like at the at the very okay. end of the day, like that's what they're doing, um, and you can't ignore the numbers on this, right? Um, because they're right. businesses. Uh, this movie yeah. it's the fifth the the fifth largest box office opening of all time. Um, yep. You as a studio are, um, you are a fool if you are not looking at, you know, this in terms of like the formula that sort of went into this production. Um, and I think that oftentimes what really sort of keeps that myth of black audiences um, not being, or rather of black films not being marketable, I think some of the subtext mm. behind that is because a lot of films um, that do have that, you know, that do star, uh, black leads, you know, quote unquote black films. Um, they oftentimes aren't given the same kind of production budgets, right? There's yep. sort of almost like a lack of faith on the studio's part that is sort of kind of like a, like a self-fulfilling prophecy. The thing I'm thinking about, I'm thinking about, um, uh, Proud Mary, the Taraji Henson film. Ooh, um, ooh, she have, ooh, she, yes. she was going out to bat so hard for this film to get like a proper press junket, right? Um, she's trying to make this point. It's like, oh, listen, no, people aren't going to see the movie if we don't tell them about the movie, right? Like that is, that is that's <laughs> insane. You know, that, that, that's basic logic, but apparently, you know, she's having to fight the studio to sort of get an international press tour. Um, that's mm. wild. And that's the kind of sort of like shooting yourself in the foot that sort of makes it easy to say, oh, well, the black films, they don't, uh, they don't, they don't do so well. What Disney right. has done is really sort of put, you know, the full weight of the machine behind this film, you know, in mm -hmm. terms of getting the right director, getting the right cast, getting, you know, the right production crew together who can, you know, realize this film um, getting the right music for the soundtrack, you know, Pistons firing, you know, on, on all fronts and then mm. put the marketing behind it and people turn out, right? People turn out when you're actually doing this well, when you're actually treating these things right, people will hand over their cash and other studios at this right. point. It's like, well, we can't, that's, that's, that's really all Marvel has done here, right? Like what, the source material aside, they just treat the movie right you know, and we responded in kind. And now the other studios, they can't look at this and be like, well, we don't know how to do it. You know, it's, 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 right. it's right there for you. Yeah. Marvel's laid, laid the, the blueprint essentially. Yeah. yeah. That's like now you, I mean, I, now everyone yeah. else, you guys can do it. I couldn't help but notice like Rick, um, fa, uh, from, oh my gosh, Rick Famuyiwa, who is the director of Dope, which was an amazing movie, had tweeted, just that it had been in the you know had been discussed as being a, pot a potential director for the Flash movie had mm. totally just tweeted something that just seemed to me like it was an observation about the vast success of the movie that seemed to imply that maybe the reason that he didn't end up sticking around to make the Flash movie for DC had to do with not being allowed to have the artistic creativity to make the movie black really. Mm. Um, you know, I mean, I don't know that we'll ever necessarily hear the full story about why he wasn't, you know, fully on that project. But, uh, I mean, I, that was immediately how I interpreted his tweet. Like, I think this is going to hopefully give other black directors the freedom to act. There's, the thing is, there's so few black directors who get to direct anything in Hollywood in the first place. There's like right. eight 
And there's like eight women. You know, one of the things about this movie also is that it had a woman cinematographer. Um, right, and it's white. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Oh, yeah. I, I forget who. I, yeah. You can always, you can always tell. You can always tell. Like, I, I hate to say this. Like, I, I firmly believe that um, women cinematographers tend to be better <laughs> as a whole. Oh, um, oh, it's just, a fact. Is a fact. It's, 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 you can you can always like and I mean it in like not just in like film. I guarantee you, like whatever your favorite like live action show is, I guarantee you your favorite episode, like the cinematographer on that episode was probably a woman. I get like it's it's like eerie. Like like try it out. Um, what Rachel like Rachel Morrison's like a, like the the like the loving care that she really sort of um, mm-hmm. guides you know your eye with. Um, for this film is so like moving, you know, and feels so God, like almost like loving in a sense, you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. it never feels, it never feels sort of like um, how to put, it never feels gazy if, if, if that makes mm-hmm. any kind of sense, right? You sort of yeah. feel as if you are being brought into a perspective of someone who is of that world you know, and it kind of builds this, like, this subtext of, like, intimacy and familiarity that really makes it so easy to connect with the film. And uh, I would just say, guys, I think we're about to enter into a spoiler zone for any of our listeners who haven't seen the movie yet. Good God, stop what you're doing. Go to the movie theater right now. From here really? on out, <laughs> there'll be spoilers. Um, you know, I was just going to introduce from that, like, yeah, like, what are the shots that you felt, like, were super iconic from the movie visually um, and that yes. sort of read images that we'll keep thinking yes. about moving forward. Do you want to take that Clark Keisha? Yes. yes. Um, I, I was, I've been thinking about this a lot. <laughs> so I did twice now. I want to go see it a third time because I'm pretty sure there's some things I missed. Um, right off the bat, um, the ancestral plane scenes, um, both for, um, I almost said Chadwick, <laughs> both for T'Challa and both for um, Eric. Um, mm. Oh my God. Like, uh, for T'Challa, I just, I can I just say he's having like the rough, roughest like 1.5 day ever. <laughs> yeah, I know. Literally. And this is a week after Civil War. Yes, mm-hmm. like he's having the worst like week, like two weeks ever. Like he lost his daddy, and then he comes back. He assumes the throne, and here comes his cousin talking about your, your dad's a murderer. Like it's, it's just a lot. It's a lot. To <laughs> I just couldn't do it. But, um. Yeah, so his scenes, like, I, it was just such a stark difference from how the first scene of him in the ancestral plane is shot and then the last scene. So he shows mm. up in the first scene. Um, there's, like, it, it's it's kind of dark, but it's, like, mystical looking. Like, it's lots of purple, lots of pink, lots of red, lots of black. Like, he walks up to this tree, and, like, there's a bunch of um, male panthers, female panthers in the tree kind of looking at him, and then one of them comes down to talk to him. Like, just it's just an example of how perfectly the film, again, blends the mystical with the technological. Um, and, mm. you know, he talks to his dad. They have this touching conversation. I cried a lot. <laughs> um, and, like, he's just kind of telling him, hey, you're ready, but if you're not ready, then, you know, maybe I fail. Did I fail? And he's like, no. And then he goes back kind of with renewed purpose. And then, again, like we're talking about, suddenly his cousin is showing up and kind of flipping his world upside down, which – he literally do, does in the shot again, where like when he usurps the throne, we yeah. come him into the throne room, and the camera literally turns. I was just, I was, I was going like it just turns. <laughs> I, it turns, but 
um, when we see T'Challa again, like after he, again, goes through his roughest 1.5 days, and he ends up back <laughs> in the ancestral plane on the head of death, <laughs> um, you know, it's instead of being as dark and as mystical, like he goes, he goes back to the plane. It's almost like sunny, weirdly enough. Like there's more daylight. Um, there's no like panthers in a tree. Like he's seeing like his dad in like clear view. He's seeing the rest of his ancestors in clear view. Like they are on his level there, you know, uh, people. Um, I feel like this is some kind of like met- extended metaphor for him seeing their like full and infallible humanity. Like he has learned the truth. He's like, mm-hmm. okay, like this stuff is not as cracked like, like, up as I thought it was. And then that's the moment where he like literally tells his father and all his ancestors, hey, you were wrong. You were wrong. You were wrong. Like you were wrong. You know, you know, when we when we started this thing, Dad, you were wrong when you didn't take, you know, um Jabu and his son back. Like you were all you were wrong. It's just I just thought it was striking that you literally can see way better. Like not to say that the other scene was blurry or anything, but you could just see way better in the scene. Like everything is like really crisp in this last scene and I don't think that was by accident. Um, so I would say the ancestral plane scenes were definitely some of my um favorite scenes in the entire movie because it just it just is very indicative of the cinematography of that most indicative of what's happening in the story so fabulous charles what about for you um god there's so there's 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 so many <laughs> um there is a lot it's hard to say. <laughs> i this i i i've seen goodness i've seen the movie um four times at this point um and the every time, you know, you come away loving a different part of it. But the thing that's really stuck with me right now, it's actually one of the less fantastical scenes. It's uh, really early in the movie when, you know, in the flashback, um, when young King T'Chaka is coming to confront his brother in Oakland for having portrayed Wakanda. Um, There's that really quick shot of young Eric uh, Killmonger looking up and seeing um, seeing the lights from the bottom of the Wakandan ship that's hovering just in the clouds, and it stuck with me because it it's this really gorgeous shot of like a little kid looking up into the sky and having this um, almost like daydream like experience, like oh that you know that mystical place that my father told us that we come from, you know, in these, you know, in these stories that may or may not be fairy tales, he's finally realizing it. Um, and within the context of the film, you know, it's actually a really tragic moment um, because Eric knows that something's wrong. But in, you know, in, in, in terms of sort of like thinking about what the film, you know, what Black Panther as a film as a whole means for like a young audience who's sort of like literally looking up and seeing these glowing beautiful images of like an Afrofuturist wonderland. Like that's so, I don't know, that stuff, it's, I, that hit me so hard, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and then like for like the action buff in me, that entire fighting sequence um, in the casino, um, in particular, that single shot of Denai Guerrera uh, Okoye taking on all of those, um, all of uh, Claw's goons, you know, that's wild. You know, that shit when she, you know, knocks that one dude down the stairs and then just jumps 
like just jumps down an entire flight of stairs in that like gorgeous billowy dress, you know, as she swoops down to kill a bunch of people. It's this brutal, vicious, but like beautiful shot, you know, mm-hmm. and it's just like, it's pure. It's, it's, it's so fluid and so kinetic. You can almost like at points you sort of like lose focus of like what exactly you're seeing, but it's so just like, it's so like raw and powerful, you know? Um, I love that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, one of the other things I, I, one of the things I was sort of struggling with watching the movie is, you know, they, Ulysses Claw is such a perfect antagonist for Black Panther because like Ulysses Claw goes to Wakanda to steal its natural resources. He is depending on whether it's the comic, you know, in the comic he's from Belgium which is, like, very in line with what Belgium does to every place. <laughs> he's from South Africa, like a white South African. He goes to Wakanda. He tries to steal his natural resources. This is, like, a living, walking embodiment of colonialism. And so when he got killed really early, I was a little bit worried because I was like, oh, no, I don't want to have to spend the whole movie with, like, black people fighting black people. Like, it's not, like, but it's not. But I've had so many people... Um, like you guys, when I've read things that you've written, say such excellent things about like the importance of showing that conflict that were depicted in the movie. And I, I'd love to hear a little bit about like how, how do you, like, did you say like it was the right choice to get rid of Claw when they did? Uh, and you know, what is the nature of showing black people fighting each other internally within the movie? Um, I, I think it was, so, go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> So I thought I, I too was shocked when it happened when Claw got taken out pretty early because uh, you know I was like I thought that's where they was gonna go so where when Eric was just kind of like you know screw it you're, this is my show now I was like oh that's what we're doing and um because it's like I would have liked to see that conflict but at the same time um, well Kavi said something that kind of put it in perspective for me right because um, you know well Kavi asked T'Challa to go find Claw bring him home, bring him to justice because of what he did to, you know, Wakanda all those years ago and, you know, what happened to Wakabi's parents because of it. So, you know, obviously when Claw gets, you know, taken by Eric and he doesn't get to Wakanda like he was supposed to, Wakabi's like, oh, your dad dealt with, you know, Claw for like 30 years and wasn't able to bring him in. I thought it'd be different, but it's more of the same. So, I feel like that was kind of the film's moment of telling us, hey, we're kind of been like battling this guy, this idea of, you know, encroaching colonialism for like a little bit. And now we're switching gears to kind of talk about or address, you know, as T'Chaka said, the truth that Wakanda chose to omit, uh, omit. Um, mm. you know, you know, Wakanda's lost son, um, the, you know, the, the, I almost said the prodigal son, the lost son. Um, so I thought that was kind of a clever way to kind of bring it back, like, okay, here's here's something that needs to be addressed that was never addressed that is also a byproduct of colonialism. I think that's the thing. Like, um, I, I thought it was cool. It just it, it, it hurt my heart, but I thought it was a smart decision to have Wakanda deal with that because um, it is a recurring point of contention in the comics between T'Challa um, and other black characters where, like, okay, you know, Misty or maybe Luke they, or even Falcon find out, hey, here's this black person from this, like, super secret, like, black society on the African continent who, like, you know, didn't feel it was necessary to step in when, you know, the other, you know, 
you know, assorted countries on the continent were getting enslaved or, you know, pillaged or whatever. And, you know, I feel like any normal person would feel a type of way because it's, it's kind of a gross example of, like, bystander syndrome, but also kind of like, do you not have empathy for your people? So I thought, um, even though it's a touchy subject, I thought it was very smart for the movie to explore. Because then what happened was it gave way to a, a lot of conversations that need to happen um, between the um, the entire community, the entire like African diaspora. So I thought that Black Panther actually took the harder <laughs> away. Because I feel like it would have been easier to address Claw and address you know you know his what he represents as colonialism, whatever. It's it's kind of easy because you're kind of like okay, we got this you know black black guy trying to overcome this kind of white force and like we've seen it done before in kind of different different um iterations i guess i'm in my mind i'm thinking about like the black exploitation era and i I can't really go into detail about that right now but like we've seen it before so i think it was smarter and more poignant for the movie to kind of go the opposite way and kind of say hey we're going to bring this in we're going to make it more personal and bring this um home so Yeah, um, I think that Killing Claw is actually um, sort of the end of it's sort of the period at the end of the sentence of uh, of one of one of Black Panther's many thesis statements about Wakanda. Uh, that sentence being like the Wakandans are fundamentally like disinterested and uh, or like uninterested and sort of unbothered by whiteness, right? Like Claw is a problem, mm-hmm. yep. but he's a he, but he's more of a pest, right? He keeps sneaking in and trying to steal vibranium, which is, a, which is an issue, right? But he, it's an issue that they can deal with. Um, one of the more, you know, like, fantastic things about this movie is how no one's blackness is really defined in relation to whiteness here. Yep. Um, yep. Everyone is very, everyone's black identity is very centered in their own experience. Um, and so you have, you know, the, the character Everett Ross, you know, he's sort of, oogling and ogling and sort of, be, you know, just sort of becoming introduced to this whole world. And you have Claw, who, you know, desperately wants to steal from it. Um, but the Wakandans, by and large, are just like, oh, my God, these white people. Can, can, must you be here right now? Right? And so that scene where Eric kills Claw is sort of like, in case you forgot, this isn't about you. Right? This has mm-hmm. never been about you. You are a tool um, in, in the larger story that um, I am trying to tell with my life. So I thought it was perfectly fine. Um, it was sad because, like, Andy Serkis is really fun in this. Um, he's definitely, yep. like, a fun foil uh, or a fun different kind of uh, villain um, in comparison to Killmonger, who's very serious. Um, that scene uh, in the British Museum, you know, where he's just, like, having fun killing people and stealing shit. And, you know, he's having fun when he's, you know, shooting up the casino. It's just, like, he, he's a joy to watch. You know, may, may claw rest mm-hmm. in peace. Um, but to, but to, to your point, Clarkisha, about where the film ultimately goes in terms of confronting that, those questions about what, where was Wakanda, um, mm. I think ultimately that's a question that the film had to ask, right? Um, because yeah. it is the logical conclusion that we all come to when we, when we think about what Wakanda would mean. Um, yep. We would all, you know, we, <laughs> I remember when I, when I was like thinking about what I wanted to write about this, an early version of um, a piece that I wrote was originally like, it was going to be a shit post about how like, y'all know Wakanda doesn't really love us like that. Like we love Wakanda, but Wakanda, eh, they don't really talk with us like that. Um, 
because that's that's the truth, right? Like that's sort of that is the reality of what it means to be an isolationist nation like Wakanda. Um, and mm. like you said, the film um, does sort of acknowledge the fact that Wakanda is a marvel, but it is not perfect in that it's sort of committed what you and a lot of people can see as like a sin, right? By, by mm. not intervening. Um, at the same time, the film also sort of does uh, make a point of emphasizing the fact that Wakanda might not be what it is if it had, you know, become involved in the affairs of the mm-hmm. rest of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, that's yep. sort of a fundamental tension that uh, characters like Okoye um, and, you know, uh, uh, Queen Ramonda to a certain extent, that's kind of what they're, um, what they are pushing in terms of uh, like when they're clinging to tradition, right? It is tradition yep. that mm-hmm. made Wakanda what it is and deviating from it. Um, you know, they don't know what it would be like, but they do know what has worked for them. Who's to say that if Wakanda yeah. had sort of tried to rise up earlier, like one of the interesting things to think about is at what point did Wakanda get to a, uh, to the point in its technological development where it had like, leapfrogged the rest of the world multiple times over, yep. right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Because the piece of the piece of vibranium that they steal from the museum, it is it, it's an axe, right? Um, mm-hmm. Like let's like it, it, I'm sure it was a very strong axe, but it was an axe. Um, we don't know that Wakandan technology could necessarily um, have been able to like resist like a, a conceited like effort to like destroy the country, mm-hmm. you know. Yep. 300, 400 years ago, right? Um, and that's like that's a that, that that's real, right? Um, yeah. The, like the like Wakandan traditionalism is fundamentally concerned with protecting Wakanda, and you have to respect that. Um, yep. So like there's it, it's a hard it's a it's a difficult thing to sort of like have to reckon with, uh, but the movie wants you to grapple with that, which is another thing yep. that really makes it so great. Well, I definitely want to bring into that then, um, Karkisha, like identifying as a Nigerian American, like, you know, what are the kind of feelings that you felt like folks are ha- who are from like an African immigrant community specifically, like, were thinking about with respect to the movie? And, and, and I don't know, you know, if you know folks who are in Nigeria now, but like, what kind of responses have you been seeing to the movie? Like, it's a mythical country in a real continent, right? Right, right. Um, yeah, a lot of the the feedback I'm getting from, you know, um, Nigerian folks and, you know, Western folks here and abroad is kind of like um, they're very intrigued by uh, the, the portrayals um, of the, the the country in general, kind of. Um, they thought the play on, you know, Wakanda, you know, trying to appear as a third world country on purpose. Um, to avoid being detected by the rest of the world, they thought that was clever. Um, even if, like, like we were talking about, it does have its own implications, especially considering other countries on the continent who that who that might actually be their reality, right? Um, mm. um, what else that we we talked about with some of my friends? Um, the accents. Let's talk about it. Yeah, we had some good chuckles with some of my friends um and you know because some of the accents that we, we we know that you know there was some work put into it like Charles Bozeman talks about how um he he modeled his after the uh, also people of South Africa and also the actor John 
um, Connie, who is South African, who plays T'Chaka, old T'Chaka. Um, and then we had uh, Winston Duke, who plays M'Baku, who, like, and I, I knew it as soon as I heard it, as soon as I heard him talking. And he's talking about, it's a challenge, yo. Like, I knew it was a, a Nigerian accent. So when mm-hmm. he comes out and says, yeah, yeah, I modeled it after, you know, this, this particular Nigerian trial. I was like, yes, so I knew it. I knew it. Um, so, yeah, you had you had actors who did put some thought into this. Um, also kind of representing a, a piece of, like, like we, they're, they're, I, I like, I just really like how, like, Ryan and his team kind of constructed Wakanda. Cause the, and, and Ruth Carter, the, the, the costume designer, God bless her, um, everything looks so great. But, like, that whole team kind of takes bits and pieces from all over the continent to kind of make Wakanda, and I appreciate it. Because um, even though it's fictional, you can see and, and see um, where these inspirations are coming from. And a lot of people, you know, abroad kind, kind of saw that and appreciated it. Um that Forrest Whitaker accent, though. <laughs> that, the Black Panther. The Black Panther. I was like, what? What accent oh, is this? I've never he heard this so before. Many times. I was like, oh, he did. He did. And I laughed every time. I was like, like I he, had to, he had to explain every time that he was giving whoever, you know, the the potion right. that would take the pan. I'm like, we, the, we, we know. We know. We know. <laughs> the power of the Black But one of the things that's really, like, initially, um, I I feel like when, like, the first trailer dropped and we heard people speaking, like, there were criticisms about the fact that the accents are all over the place, right? And everyone's like, oh, see, like, y'all couldn't even get Wakanda right. Like, y'all just got all these accents and y'all think it's a bunch of black folks. But the film actually incorporates that, like, it it acknowledges it in a really clever way, right, Um, in the... Mm. Um, that opening sequence when they sort of explain mm-hmm. the, uh, the origins of Wakanda, um, mm-hmm. I love it. It's, that that, that it, 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 it goes out of its way to be like, oh no, no Wakanda was not like a, a country that preexisted that happened um, to receive vibranium. It's sort of these multiple right. tribes came together and sort of formed the country, right. and the it's tribes right. have re- they've retained their own traditions. Um, you know the gods that they worship and the accents, obviously. Um, you know, right. they are they are unified Wakanda, but they still retain their individual identities, um, which is, you know, a clever, you know, <laughs> it's a clever narrative workaround for the fact that everyone's accent is mm. different. But it's also a recognition and celebration of a kind of pan-African identity, yep. right? Um, this idea yep. that we are all black, but at the same time, we are a multiplicity of peoples that have traditions that are vast and varied. We don't all look alike. We don't all sound alike. You know, there is a kinship between us all, but, you know, we are individuals, um, which is sort of um, one of the, the, the films. I want to say it's like, a, it's like a subtle message, but it's still very apparent and very important and yeah. just fantastic. Yeah, I, I guess I was also sort of curious about, like, because the costumes, which are just stunning, you know, we're really remixing different elements of different um, traditional uh, African-specific, like, you know, ethnic groups within Africa's styles. Like, if there were going to be people who would be like, oh, like, actually, you really shouldn't be doing this and that together because, you know, 
like doing the cultural mashups is a, it can be delicate. So and it seems like there hasn't been oh, any, yeah, I agree. any things yeah. raised. But I but I'd love to hear like I mean, have you heard any people concerned with how those costumes were remixed together? Um, not so much the costumes as uh the the actually the, the you know, the idea that people were going to dress up to go to these premieres had um, some people on abroad kind of a little bit worried because there are, like you said, there are certain pe- pieces that should not be put together or maybe certain pieces, for example, that shouldn't be worn with, like, jeans or something, like, stuff like that. So that actually was more of the worry. Um, Ruth Carter and Ryan actually did do their research. Like, like I remember, he, he, I think he did an interview recently where he said he actually went to Africa and to these different countries to kind of look, observe, do their research. So, even though Ruth Carter was kind of walking a really delicate line <laughs> with, like you said, doing these mashups, I think she did an excellent job um, with them and also making sure that these, even as she was joining some of these um, different, like, like cultural notes together, making sure that she was doing it in a respectful way um, right. so that she was not step, stepping on the toes of any culture or kind of you know, mixed matching cultures that shouldn't be going together because that happens too, right? Um, so, yeah, I, I haven't really heard any immense criticisms for her costumes. Overall, um, I've heard great things about her costumes. I think her costumes are great. I also think if she doesn't get an Oscar nom for her uh, costume design, I'm going to write it. So <laughs> I agree. I agree. I, I, you know, the, 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 the costuming Oscars are sort of, you know, the redheaded stepchildren of the Oscars because everyone's like, oh, well, you want to But, like, legitimately, Black Panther has a legit shot at becoming the first Oscar-winning um, Marvel movie for its costume, oh, yeah. which is not, like, which is not, like, something to scoff at at all. Um, mm-hmm. I think one of the reasons that we haven't really heard that many complaints about the costumes is because they are realized in a way that isn't, like... Um, how to put um, ex- exploitative at all. It doesn't feel mm-hmm. sort of like you're ogling someone and sort of ooing and eyeing at like the novelty of it. Um, these are, mm-hmm. or rather, it's like these. The costumes are a part of these people's identities. About like, these these characters' identities, um, and because they are treated with like that care and respect. Um, even things that might not necessarily gel a hundred percent with um, like people's actual traditions as to how things are worn mm-hmm. because they are treated with like a reverence overall. I think people are like chill with it. Could be wrong. Right. Um, I could, I could be wrong, but that's the, the general sense that I've been getting. Yeah. I want to read one of, one of the quotes that Charles said yesterday at the Afrofuturism over fear event that we were at. <laughs> because um, this is just like so amazing. He said, to people saying Wakanda isn't real, Wakanda is a symbol of our art and culture, which is real. Um, can you just, I, I just was like, that's such an amazing response. But I felt like that was kind of really in line with the conversation you guys were just having right here. Oh, well, yeah, like, no, Wakanda isn't real, but Wakanda is an allegory, right, for the, uh, goodness, for the rich wealth and complexity and contribution that like black, you know, that black people um, as a community have given to the world, you know, 
we've give you know we've produced amazing works of art you know breakthroughs in science um you know sparked movements that have changed the world you know that um is a kind of wealth that can't be quantified right much in the mm-hmm. same way that wakanda is an endless well of potential because of vibranium um mm-hmm. black people you know we as a people are uh, goodness we are we are a transformative force, you know, in society, you know, across the globe. Yep. And that is sort of, that is the ultimate, uh, that is the ultimate message that I take away from the idea of Wakanda. Um, and that's mm-hmm. real, right? Like, and when you look at it through that lens, um, you're like, oh shit, like Wakanda, Wakanda is real, right? Like Wakanda, Wakanda is, you know, Wakanda is, wherever black people are creating something, yep. right? Um, yep. That, you know, that, that energy, you know, that is the vibranium that has changed our society. Um, and I think that that's one of the reasons, I think that as that sort of pop begins to pop up more and more in the discourse, that's why you're starting to see these weird contrarian pieces that are like, Wakanda isn't real. It's like, we know, like, it's a, it's a comic book, dude. Calm, like, calm your shit. What are you getting all, like, what are you getting all riled up about? Um, because the only thing, you know, the only thing that there really is to get upset about is the fact that people are being so celebratory of this idea. Yeah. You know? Yep. I agree. Yep. Because I'm like, people can um, run around pretending to receive Hogwarts letters and, you know, <laughs> pretend that Westeros is real, then, yeah, you're damn right. I'm going <laughs> to. Right. I, I can celebrate Wakanda if I want to. So, like, it's, I, I agree with Charles. I think it's an issue. With a lot of these contrarian pieces, the, the the prime issue is that you know these folks don't like to see black people happy. That you know black black joy is um, contrary um, to to the the opposite of what you know we usually see in in media and in, in mass media too. Um, uh, black pain. Like I, I wrote, I think I think I wrote back in 2014 when um, Civil War came out. Like, again, I am a Marvel stan, but, like, the MCU has issues, and one of my biggest issues with the MCU is that when when black characters have been featured, if at all, uh, there's uh, there's always some association with, like, like, like suffering or pain or whatever. Like, even in Civil War, where the, the central conflict that started was the bombing in Nigeria, like, like there's literally a zoom-in, which I thought was unnecessary, on a dead black girl. And I'm like, well, why was that necessary? So to kind of go from that to going to Black Panther to going to Wakanda where we, we don't have to see that on display, we don't have to see our bodies on display, we don't have to um, kind of be subjected to that weird gaze at the black body, I think that's that was enough for me to celebrate. So I think that's the principal issue that a lot of these, these contrarian people um, are having. It's just it, it, it's the opposite of what the world is used to. They're, they're used to, you know, looking at looking at this pain and suffering, and that's not what this movie is about. Um, so it, it's kind of it's befuddling them. So, and I hope it continues yeah. to befuddle them, so I can be free. To call back to something you said earlier, Alana, about um, concerned about seeing like black on black violence. Um, I think that it's really important for everyone, you know, something else that's really great about this movie is that black people are allowed to be villains, right? 
um, yep. a part of representation. I don't, um, earlier I was talking about how like perfect T'Challa was in the original comics. Like I don't want a perfect black hero, right? I want a relatable black hero. I want, mm-hmm. and like representation means like, I want to see like, like black villains who are ready to burn the world down because that is a part of the human experience, right? Um, seeing that is in a way validating to our own like um, more nefarious desires, if that makes any sense. And, and I'm not talking, yep. I'm talking about like black villains as a whole. Um, I'm thinking, I'm thinking specifically right now, I don't know if you guys are watching Black Lightning, um, Jill Scott is playing Lady Eve, um, who is mm-hmm. this, goodness, this like ruthless sociopath. And she's like fantastic to see, um, similar to the way um, that Alfre Woodard was in um, Luke Cage, right? Um, you have these just like these terrifying, scary villains who happen to be black. And you're like, yes. And you like, you find yourself like cheering for them. And that in and of itself is a very sort of affirming experience, right? Um, yep. Because these characters aren't bad because they're black, which, you know, was often the case for so very long. Um, mm-hmm. They're just people, you know, they're people first, you know what I mean? Um, but because the movie, because the movie is so, because the movie is so centered in blackness, it makes the sense, it makes the conflict between Killmonger and T'Challa um, and, you know, the border tribe versus the Dora Milaje. It makes it like, uh, what's the word? Um, it doesn't feel, it doesn't feel ex- again, exploitative or anything. It just feels like, Oh no, this mm-hmm. is a, this is a, this is a, a conflict that is happening in a black, in like an African country. Like, yes, like there mm-hmm. are going to be black people fighting one another. That's just how this works. I mean, I yeah. had a friend who was asking if the movie passed the Bechdel test and I was like, look, 15% of the movie's dialogue are women debating political stances. So yeah. Yeah. You know, and the other 15 is women debating men over political stances. Okay. Yep. Uh, so I like, yeah, I'd love to hear you guys talk a little bit more about like, you know, we, I think like all of us comic leftists kind of left the movie being a little bit like Killmonger made some valid points, like the way we have Cyclops made some valid points as a slogan. But Nakia <laughs> obviously was making those points and like didn't shoot her boyfriend, unlike Killmonger who shot his girlfriend. Um, what did you think about like the political debates between the characters and also just like the tragedy of Killmonger in general with respect to the story? Um, oh, so, oh, yeah. Great question. Love it. Love it. So I do want to start with the politics for, especially among the women. Um, I, I'm kind of a little bit frustrated that there are not more conversations centered on the women. Like, everyone's just talking about, okay, Killmonger, you know, had points, this and that, and T'Challa, and yada, yada. I'm like, yeah, yeah, but, like, the women, though, like, man, they <laughs> they make the movie, right? So, for me, I think my my favorite conflict, other than, you know, obviously Killmonger having good points, because he did have good points, um, was it was between Okoye and Nakia. Um, Okoye is, um, she's a traditionalist. Um, she is bound by duty. Uh, I loved her arc in this movie. I also loved Nakia's arc. Because as you mentioned, Nakia is what Eric wanted to be, but could not. he couldn't get there because he was too pissed off at the world. And he had every right to be pissed off, but he never circled back from that. That He just stopped there. Um, right. Nakia, early on, you see her saying, Wakanda needs to open its borders to refugees. We have the resources. We have the manpower. We have, um, we have the aid 
to go out and help the world. And you know what? We can do it damn better than the rest of these little Western countries. And I agree with her. I was like, yes. And then, you know, the child is kind of like, you know, again, following the footsteps of his dad and answers for him. Well, you know, Wakanda's been isolationist for so long. I don't know if I want to, you know, burr, burr. So and it kind of <laughs> gets brushed off until, again, Eric shows up as, you know, you know, the radical leftist to, you know, push Wakanda away from its conservative ways, like, what, what, however you want to read that. Um, but then, again, it crops up when, you know, Eric creates that conflict where he's flipping the country on his head, he's here to, you know, burning things, um, burning traditions, severing the, the spirit connection, like, a lot, of, he's doing a lot of stuff in a very short amount of time. Um, and, you know, Nakia, you know, God bless her, she takes initiative to, you know, save the queen, save the princess steal the the remaining herb, you know, that wasn't burned. Um, and then she goes off to find Okoye, and she kind of, she assumes that because Okoye was loyal to T'Challa that she's going to just automatically defect and, you know, overthrow Eric. And, you know, Okoye, again, has to kind of put the brakes on that, like, no, I am bound to that throne. I'm bound to serve, you know, whoever's on that throne. If it was a freaking cactus, I would have to serve the cactus. I can't just, you know, <laughs> not serve the cactus. I just can't not serve the cactus. Sorry, like, and it. You can just see how conflicted Okoye is, and it just, it just, it just, it broke me because, like, you, like when you know when you know they're they're doing a little ritual combat, and like it's very clear that you know Charles gonna take this L. Like you can see her tearing up. You can see her wanting to do something, but knowing that she's bound by the duty of her station of her country, she doesn't do anything. So she had a really she just all these characters had these really good arcs and just this really like tight two hour 14 minute movie and I'm just like it blows me away because like at you know the climax of the film when the child shows back up and you know Eric is trying to gerrymander <laughs> the office talking about you know no F the challenge no we're not doing that anymore Akoya is like wait 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 but you can't just like that, that that's 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 part of the deal you just can't you know, do away with it. Like, she has to, at that moment, say, hey, well, because um, my country is at stake, again, she's loyal to her country, because her country is at stake, she now has to abandon, kind of, her duties to this quote-unquote throne to save the country, like, which is what Nikki was doing. But Koya couldn't get there until Eric, again, Eric pushed her there. Like, Eric does a lot of pushing to all these characters, to get them to these really good arcs, and which is why I appreciate him as a character. But like he put, pushes Okoye there where she's like, you know what, F this, I'm going to save my country, um, and we're going to take you down. So just kind of having that dichotomy between her and between Nakia, who's like, she loves her country and is going to save it another way, save it kind of outside the traditional way. Um, it was just nice to see that, uh, especially between women, um, and have that be really instrumental to the plot. So I, I I just this movie has a lot of different dichotomies going on. Um, I, I would say there's one going on between you know Mbaku and like Shuri even like to have that you know um, tradition versus again tech again or um, innovation. Um, again, there's also T'Challa and Eric, but there's also Eric and Nakia. Um, I haven't written, I'm, I'm in the works of writing a thing, but, like, to me, because I used to do some a lot of, like, social justice organizing, to me, Eric kind of represented re- represented that kind of, like, fiery, bombastic, um, charismatic, like, activist who who is, like, 
he gives great speeches and he has great ideas, but <laughs> not necessarily. He doesn't necessarily know how to implement that. And then you have Nakia, right. who like she's been on the ground, she's in the community. Like we see her literally, in, she's infiltrated. Kind of like I, I, I'm gonna go ahead and like make that that parallel where like very reminiscent of like what Boko Haram is doing to Nigeria right now. Like these these mm-hmm. these. These thugs have kidnapped these women, and and God knows where they're going to take them. And the key is in there; she's on the ground; she's ready to, you know, infiltrate and save these these women in, in Chibok, um, to, and to kind of see her, see that she's about it early on, um, and she's a, she's about doing that work to kind of better her country, better the continent, better these people who need it. Um, she kind of reminds me of these these women um, in the social justice. Um, sector who do the work, who do the really tough, gritty, um, grass, grass, grassroots work that's not as glamorous, yeah. you know, as, as the activists. Like, but they're doing the work that needs to be done. So that really, that dichotomy also stood out to me, and that's why I laughed a lot where people were just like, well, you know, Eric Bright and this and that. I'm like, but the real hero here, though, is Nakia, because she was, she was right before all y'all was right. Like she was watching before, you know, T'Challa did, you know, the, he did his heel turn after kind of getting punched in a couple times by Eric. And then she was right while Eric was, you know, going on his little power trip. So um, this movie just does a lot of fascinating things with dualities and double consciousnesses and um, dichotomies. And I just, I, every time I watch this movie, I learn something new. So I'm just, again, excited for like the next time I'm going to see the movie. So. I I feel like a, I feel like I don't know if you guys can hear that music playing outside. Um, I feel like a huge nerd saying this, but um, the politics that like really kind of just like scratched this itch I didn't know I had. Um, those scenes um, in the throne room between all of the tribal leaders, um, that yeah. shit is fascinating, right? Because I want, like, I want to know what their drama is. I want to know, like, what the rivalries are between the border tribe and the merchant tribe, right? I want to know about all of the complicated politics going on within Wakanda. Because while Wakanda is, like, unified, they have their own issues, right? They have their Mm. own um, interpersonal struggles between the tribe. Like, you know they do. Um, They don't really get into it in the film, but it's, like, it's a part of, like, that lush um, background texture. And it's something that even though it isn't really explored at all, you can just sort of like feel the weight and the gravity of it. Um, In that first Mm -hmm. scene with the challenge day, um, it has like, there's a little bit of, uh, you get like a little bit of an idea of how the Wakandan power structure works, right? You have all of these different tribes and they all have their champions. Um, I feel like everybody's sort of, like people, one of the things about Nakia that people aren't really mentioning that much, she's not just a spy. She's not just, you know, T'Challa's, love interest she is the champion for her tribe right like mm-hmm. if her tribe were to make a go for the throne she would be the one who would take the throne from t'challa um yep. you know she, you know she makes that joke about like becoming a queen it's like oh no like don't get it twisted like if i really want the throne like i'll just knock you off it um you know, <laughs> it's that that's that little bit of it's that little bit of um uh, like that spark between the two of them um that's so uh like charming to see on the screen um, but it's that kind of just, you know, subtle, but also really well thought out 
um, kind of depiction of Wakandan politics that um, really, 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 really sort of like excited me and gave me hope for what the next movie is going to be uh, like. Mm-hmm. Speaking of the next movie, and you're right, I love the expansions and all those things. Let's talk about opportunities for queerness that we see in Wakanda stories moving forward. Yes, yes, let's. Um, can I just say that I am all about Okoye dumping Wakabi in the next movie? Oh, please, um, please, 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 please. Wakabi's a fuckboy. I'm going to go on record and, and say, yeah. oh, 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 my God. Like, oh, my he's Oh, he was so childish this entire movie. He was childish to T'Challa for expecting T'Challa to do a 30-year job in one day. He was mm-hmm. childish to... Um, Okoye, you know, like, embarrassing her out of these streets, like, just not knowing how to act. Like, I was so upset for all these people. I was like, well, Kabi, he just is just out here. He does not know. He's not acting like a grown man. And it was pissing me off. I feel like I feel like Daniel Kaluuya made that face on purpose. That's sort of like I'm over this shit. Like when when are you when are you gonna give me what I look? He's because he kind of has this like pissed off look in the entire movie that I love. But it is kind of like a petulant child. He's like I came here to, to get what I want, and everybody's like, Wakabi, well, my dude, like can you can you wait? And he's like, No, I can't wait. Nope. <laughs> nope. I, nope. I, my favorite. I noticed, yeah, like watching the movie the second time was that you know that he already believes in this like international, uh, you know, take like arming Wakandans to help other black folks in a place. Because he says it to T'Challa. He's he like, it. if you told us, yeah, yeah he, if you, he's like, if you want us to go out and like fix the world, me and my men will do it. And T'Challa's like, what? No. I know. Put that in. Yeah. Like, the movie had that whole motivation for him in there before it even needed to. That's how well-crafted it was. But sorry. Yeah. You're talking about how we need to break out a certain couple from the movie and how we are going to make everything queer. Continue, continue. Um, I mean, like, we all know, we all know that, uh, we all know that that scene um, between Okoye and Ayo was uh, cut, um, even though it was shot. Uh, the scene that sort of hinted at a bit of a romance between the two of them. Um, and rather rather than that sort of being one of the romantic subplots in the movie, Okoye and Wakabi are dating. Um, and e- even from like the very first time I saw the movie, I'm like, this doesn't really make any sense. Um, because the movie does telegraph that there is a part of Wakabi that, you know, is not on the level. And Okoye is such like a sharp and smart character. I don't buy that she wouldn't have been like, you know what, like you're not the one for me. You know what I mean? Like I can't see a world in which the two of them are in a committed relationship. And if you, I've been saying this, you know, to whoever, I've been shouting this from the mountaintops. If Wakabi had been Okoye's sister, uh, the emotional import of their confrontation at the end would have been the exact same. In my mind, you know, aside from they literally, I feel like, I feel like they're not actually in that many scenes together. And then they just call each other, my love. And we're supposed to be like, okay, they love each other. It's like, no, 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 no. I don't buy that. Like y'all, like y'all don't, y'all don't know each other that well. Like y'all see each other in the cafeteria sometimes, but no, 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 no. (laughs) Uh, um, But um, as much as I love this film, um, one of the uh, valid critiques that is sort of coming out of this um, is that as uh, as much of an egalitarian society as we are led 
to believe Wakanda is, you know, we see that the society is largely like almost matriarchal, right? Like, um, mm-hmm. you know, the queen is not just the queen, she's the queen mother, right? Um, it is this idea that, you know, the power of Wakanda flows from her. We see that there are female leaders in the other tribes. And when we see that last shot of the ancestral plane, when T'Challa goes back the second time, we see that there have been female panthers in the past, um, which mm-hmm. is something that's uh, not the case in the comics. Um, there, you know, Shuri is the panther more, more recently, but in terms of looking back at the history of Wakanda uh, up until rather recently, they've all been depicted as being men. Um, I'm saying all this to be like, all right, so we, we get the, the idea that like women have not been held back in Wakanda society. Great. But mm-hmm. because we don't see queer people, because we only see cis um, straight folks, that's like this one, it, it just sort of, it hits the ear wrong. You're like, oh, y'all still got mm-hmm. that though? Like, yeah, like, well, like, wait, 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 yeah. wait where the gay folk at? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so kind of like, it, it's, it's not like a huge ding against the movie, but it is sort of like, oh, well, you know, um, as we, you know, as we look to Wakanda to sort of be a projection of an idealized future for blackness, um, you know, it's imperative that we see uh, all forms of blackness there, right? Like, so we've got, you know, we've got a multiplicity of different faces, but like we need gender representation, like beyond just the, the, the cis binary, uh, more depictions mm-hmm. of like queer folks. And, you know, there's been like a lot of like push, like I, I wrote a piece that like I picked up by some sites that won't be mentioned. And, you know, I got a lot of salty people in my mentions about like, oh, like, why did the, like, why does it have to be a gay thing? And I mean, it's real simple. Cause like, they're gay black people. Hi. Right. Mm-hmm. Like we're out here. Like we are a part of you. Right. You are a yeah. part of us, like it or not. Yeah. Um, and also it's not, you know, we're, we're no one's saying that the movie has to be like, Oh, and then, you know, Io and Okoye slip off into the bedroom. Although, Hey, if it happens, it happens. Right. Like you know, mm-hmm. that, that was the case with Valkyrie. <laughs> but it's these, it's these very, it doesn't have, it's, when we're talking about what queer representation is, it's not like we have like, <laughs> a stereotypical moment where, you know, the gay character, the queer character, you know, looks into a mirror and a singer on a, and a single teardrop, you know, rolls down their cheek and they tell you the story about how they came out. No, we're not, we're not always talking about that. We literally, we literally right. mean just like, are there queer people there? Do, are they coded as being queer? Can we see their queerness be acknowledged? Right. It doesn't have to be like a, Hey everybody, I'm gay. It's literally just like, Oh, like that's Io and her girlfriend. It, right and like it's literally something as simple as that is so powerful just in terms of like representation because it's normalizing right you know like oh yes mm-hmm. this you are mm-hmm. a part of this world that we're creating so and in case anyone doesn't you know, know like they are a couple in the comics like that right is, right that's, that's, and that's one of the reasons it was not that that matters but <laughs> well, like that that's that's one of the reasons that's, that it's kind of like oof because the dora malache as they've been reinvented more recently, you know, the, the leaders of the leaders of like the, the Dora Milaje revolution who sort of like broke off from the throne in order to become agents of change in Wakanda um, are led by a lesbian couple. Um, it's Io and goodness, it's not okay in the comics, I forget what her. It's Anika, uh, right? Anika. Yeah. 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 Right. Like they are, these two queer women who are in love and they have this badass battle armor and they're like, yo, Dormelage, um, Wakanda's falling apart and the men can't get it together. Like, let's get some shit done, right? They are very much the inspir like you can you can feel the spirit of those characters 
in the Dora Milaje as a whole, but specifically within Okoye, right? Um, and because Ayo, who's played in the movie by Florence Kasamba, is right there, um, like I wanna, like you, I, I, I buy, I, I would much, I, I would much, I have much easier time buying the idea of Okoye and Ayo as a couple than I do uh, Okoye and Wakabi. Right, because even though mm-hmm. I doesn't really speak all that much in this movie, we all remember her from Civil War, right? When she checked mm-hmm. Scarlett Johansson, right? We're like, oh yeah, like I, I can see, I can see her and Okoye like being in a very stable relationship with one another. So, mm-hmm. nah. Clarkisha, do you have any uh, any other thoughts on how we're going to all make everything clearer in the next go round? Um. Uh... I, I I think he, he pretty much summed it up correctly. I really, <laughs> I just want to see. I want to see Koye dump that fuck boy. I was over him. I was over him. <laughs> I was like, I'm a hundred percent done with you. Um, I wish she would shank him at the end because <laughs> she's honorable. She's more honorable than me. So whatever. But I definitely want to see them break up. Like, uh, would love to see um Koye and I get together. And if they don't get together, at least Akoya with someone else, who maybe yeah. someone else in Dora Milaje, who knows? Um, but yeah, um, this is me being really some other. This is me being really flash ficky, but like just looking forward to Black Panther two, um, in terms of like where the where this franchise can go now that it's killed off two of the Black Panthers like main adversaries from the comics. Mm-hmm. Um, I am all about. Marvel being like, it's time for us to bring Namor into the fold and for oh. Namor to really sort of become, you know, like T'Challa's next, like, big like, existential threat. Not necessarily hmm. to, like, wish, but for him to sort of be, like, a recurring issue. I'm very invested in the idea of, like, a very queer-coded Namor, who's just, like, strutting around in, you know, his swim trunks being like, mm, Wakanda, whatever, Atlantis forever. And just being very much sort of like, I just want like, I want there to be like a weird sexual tension between T'Challa and the king of Atlantis. <laughs> like that's like, that is, that is, I, that is. I would be okay with that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> T'Challa is a charming, he's a charming motherfucker. I would be okay with that. Um, yeah. Just my, my only, my only addition to that would be like, I want to keep that. But make um, the Atlanteans like uh, Asian or maybe like South yeah. Asian, East Asian, like kind of bring that conflict into it because I feel like they they mm-hmm. doing that would help help that particular region deal with some other some of their some of their issues, right? Um, I would love to do that and then have that interplay between um, T'Challa and Neymar. I think it'd be awesome. Yeah, um, you know the, the MCU. One of the one of the more like one of the very accurate criticisms of the MCU is that it is still very under like Asian, like people like Asian people are still very underrepresented in it. Yeah, um, you know we've got um, Ming Na Wen and Chloe Bennett on Agents of Shield, um, and goodness, what is her name? Uh, please, Colleen Wing um, in Luke uh, or in Iron Fist. Uh, Jessica Henwick. Uh, yeah, Jessica, I, yeah, you know, she's fantastic. Um, you know, you've got um, Palm, I cannot pronounce her last name. Anyway, like, bit, like, you know, there are, you know, there are Asian people, you know, there are Asian actors who've been cast throughout the films and the television shows, which is good. But in terms of their being, oh, I'm obviously Benedict Wong. Um, um, 
but in terms of there being sort of like a very like strong Asian presence, uh, that's been largely missing. Yeah. Um, yeah. And Atlantis is literally the perfect opportunity for that. And yep. because of the weird, like you, you, uh, you know, uh, the, um, you know how Marvel is with like the rights still being sort of uh, in limbo elsewhere. I don't think Marvel can technically make a straight up Namor film on his own, similar to the way that they can't make a Hulk film on their own, but um, Namor can definitely become like a recurring fixture within, you know, the Black Panther's orbit. Um, specifically, okay. you know, who else is going to take on Wakanda except for, you know, the Atlanteans who are essentially, you know, it's their Wakandans under the sea with magic and well, yep. technology. Yeah. <laughs> Although I have, I do have one thought on that though. Like who's going to take Wakanda on again? It's a CIA. Like, we have a whole movie with, like, a strangely benevolent... I mean, they acknowledge that, like, the CIA is also, you know, who taught Killmonger how to destabilize a nation. But, like... Yeah. I, I, I'm sorry. I just recently read Reginald Hudlin's run on Black Panther, and God mm. bless him for writing a comic book about the Iraq War, like, during the Iraq War, that completely calls out the Iraq War as colonialism, and in which mm. the U.S. government is the bad guy. Like, God fucking bless yeah. him, because that was so important. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I, I'm glad yeah. you brought that up. Yeah. Oh my God, it's so good. <laughs> and if anyone hasn't read it yet, like it really is great. I feel like it hasn't gotten enough love. It's like no, it's incredibly heavy-handed, but like in such a pleasurable way. If you happen to share my politics <laughs> against the Iraq War, um, and also it's the first appearance of like Shuri just going and like being great, and you know Ramonda gets to punch a colonialist in the balls. It's great. Um, but uh, what's to say? Oh. Yes, so speaking of speculative, um, I recently learned that uh, Killmonger's girlfriend has a name and that it was Tilda Johnson. Now, comic folks may know Tilda Johnson as Nightshade from the comics, who recently got brought back in the critically uh, acclaimed and commercially not adequately purchased at Please People Go Buy It Now Nighthawk series. Um, mm. by Ramon Lobos and David F. Walker, um, in which Tilda Johnson is amazing and hilarious, and we love her. And I just kept thinking, like, oh my God, I, like, she, like, what, what, we don't, we, we now we don't have Tilda Johnson, like, as a possibility in the future of the MCU. It kind of broke my heart a little bit realizing that. I don't know if anybody else had, any, had heard about it, but. Yeah, like, yeah, in the comics, I, I, she, oh, go ahead. No, go ahead, yeah. Oh, I mean, like in the comics, uh, she's like, she's a lot like Nakia in a way. Um, um, she, you know, she, she looking like thinking on it, thinking about it as like a scale where, you know, Nakia is like uh, a 10 and Eric is like a zero in terms of, you know, where their politics lie. Um, Tilda, I want to say she's like a seven. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And that she is much more um, she understands in the comics. She's uh, very canny. She's you know, she's a genius. She's very competent. Um, you know, she's an expert at what she does. She's a villain, you know, but she's very good at it. And um, in, you know, in, in the movie, she's very much like um, she's kind of a prop, you know. Yeah. Um, you know, she is a tool that helps. Uh, Eric accomplished his nefarious goals and she's, you know, depicted as being very caught up in the thrill of his villainy. Um, And one imagines that like, 
you know, he probably walked up to her one day in like a black bookstore and started talking like that really cute hotep shit. And she was just enamored by it and got swept up in his life. Um, and then he ended up shooting her. Right. And you're like, damn, that's fucked up. Yeah. My question is, who I've heard, and I, again, I'll probably have to watch the movie again to make sure I didn't miss it. Because I've, I've heard several things where, like, initially um, that was going to be the Nightshade character, but apparently, if I remember correctly, she the same character was cast on Luke Cage. So instead uh. of with Nightshade, they called her Linda in the movie. I Again, I got to go back and watch the credits again to make sure I read that yeah. right. But I think what happened is that there was like a kind of a mini switcheroo. So mm. instead of getting Nightshade, Nightshade's going to go over to Luke Cage and we got some other, you know, kind of fodder. I, that's what she was, a fodder girlfriend character um, in right. a film named Linda who didn't really get to do anything. I think she had like two lines. She was like, I got to go and, and I'm sorry. I think that was the extent <laughs> of her Gotcha, line. gotcha, gotcha. And, yeah, I was really mad about that. Sorry. So I'm like, what, what the hell are you apologizing for? Like, Ooh. Yeah. I Do you mean. ever? <laughs> sometimes I, you know how technically, um, the. Hello? Oh, no. Charles just got dropped again, I believe. Uh, can you hear me, Clarkisha? Uh, I'm still here. Yes, ma'am. Mm-hmm. You're still here. Okay, good, good. I don't know what's going on. Um, I mean, I know that the phone is bad, but, uh. Okay, we'll we'll proceed. Hold on. Um, let me just tell Brett he got dropped. I was just going to say, like, I've been primarily sort of being here, just trying to help facilitate conversation with you guys because I want to hear, I want to hear your thoughts. Like that's why you're on the show. I, I, I but I had a conversation um, during uh, Black Panther Fan Activist Con, um, and one of our participants made an observation that just completely knocked my socks off. Um, and Kim Clark, who is a racial justice activist in California was the person who called attention to this when we were talking. She said, um, Oscar Grant and Killmonger were both killed by the train tracks, you know, while portraying like literally the same actor, like being portrayed Mm -hmm. by the same actor. And, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, when Killmonger died, I cried because that scene is incredibly touching, but I totally Mm -hmm. had not noticed until until Kim pointed it out to me, like holy shit, they're both Killmonger gets killed by the train tracks in both movies. Like the American black character, you know, Oscar Oscar Grant, the real person in the real world, and then Killmonger in the in the movies, and that that must be a deliberate parallel being being mm-hmm. uh, being made by 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 the director. I was just stunned mm. by that. So, yeah, yeah, um, it, it just it helps too that Ryan is again the same, <laughs> the same director. Like, oh God, you cannot tell me that Michael B. Jordan is not his muse. Like they li- they literally just yeah. signed up for another movie again. <laughs> uh, um, so yeah, I I think it's deliberate. Like I, I keep telling people, like um, despite Eric's villainy um, and, and his his highly highly neo colonial neo imperialist plan. Um, mm. for this Wakandan empire, quote-unquote, um, at the heart of it um, was uh, a, a black child. I, I keep thinking about him as, like, a little boy finding his dad, like, murdered in that way um, and knowing damn well that no investigation was going to fall up on that. Like, I know we know we know T'Chaka did it, but, like, 
the Oakland police is not going to look into it. They're just going to be like, well, you know, probably some rival gang or something, black on black crime. Like, you know, they're just going to dust it off, right? So, Great point. At, at the heart of, yeah, at the heart of it, it was just, um, you know, uh, um, Eric, you know, being kind of stuck in that, that, that anger, uh, being wounded, that injustice done to him, not only um, by society, because, uh, again, we don't really know what happened to his mom, and I think that sticks out to me a lot, um, because we keep talking about the women's movie, kind of being a matriarchal society, we don't know where his mom went, or if she died, or whatever, I don't know if that's ever addressed, um, so, again, to that point, Najobu was probably his only active parent, and when he's gone, uh, I can only imagine that he was probably kind of thrown into the system and forgotten. So then you have that anger kind of fester and fester and fester. So not only was he almost done doubly dirty by his ancestral home of Wakanda, but like also the American system screwed him over too. But then ironically, he's molded by that system um, when he, he joins with the black ops, like going to Iraq, going to Afghanistan, murdering and killing and destabilizing like it's just he's definitely <laughs> a cautionary tale um what I, I hadn't thought about the kind of the train metaphors too so um even though he is a cautionary tale he's also um, a, a tragedy and um one um that is very um Oh, familiar to Black Americans, I should say. So yeah, I didn't, I didn't think about that train, that train connection at all. I'm glad you mentioned it because I, I, again, again, I would have, it would have went over my head. Yeah, I mean, Kim Clark, man, I gotta give her credit. Thank you. <laughs> um, so mm-hmm. as we close up on the uh, on our on our on the hour, you know, you guys are my comics people as well. So I would love to hear your thoughts about the post-credit sequences, both of them, both the one that's in the UN as well as the one in which we find out who's being called White Wolf. Yes, yes, yes. Um, I guess the UN one, I knew, you know, Wakanda was going to have to draw a seat up to the, you know, United Nations table. I was so... I almost think they're kind of above it, but obviously they do want to play ball and kind of um, kind of introduce themselves to the global community in the correct way. Because like, like we talked about, at this point, it was just assumed that they were a nation of farmers and they're poor and yada, yada. But like, you know, kind of obviously it's just like, ah, it's like, no, we're not. Um, so it's kind of interesting for talk to kind of give this, you know, you know, grand speech talking about what Wakanda plans to do and how um, we as nations are kind of our, each other's, like, brother and sister's keepers and whatever, and kind of hearing that kind of uh, very, very snide, um, presumptive white <laughs> man asked T'Challa, well, what's the nation farmers have to offer Wakanda? And it's, it's funny, too, because... T'Challa doesn't even ask me, just got smirked at him, and I, I would have presumed that T'Challa, in my head cannon, you know, even though the camera cut out my head cannon, T'Challa just kept talking over this man. <laughs> or maybe, like, Jabari barked at him or something, like, but, um, <laughs> yeah, I, I'm just assuming that he's just like, yeah, whatever, like, we were super advanced, you, like, you don't even understand. Um, so, yeah, but I think it was important to show that, hey, we're kind of stepping up to the plate, because I feel like that's going to be kind of a jumping off point when, you know, we see Daniel showing up later, 
So Thanos is here to like fuck some shit up, and uh, <laughs> if you know if, what, if Wakanda or T'Challa decide to be like, mm, no, we're gonna ignore you guys again, or just be in for again, I definitely think the the world would get done in. So kind of seeing that Wakanda is gonna be a very central point in kind of like the battle for Earth it is good, and I feel like T'Challa kind of stepping up to the UN kind of introduces that door to be open. Um, as for the 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 White Wolf reference, um, I thought it was funny, <laughs> uh, considering because um, I I I laughed about it early in the movie when um, Shuri mentioned you know her having to fix broken white boys because um, I thought there was going to be a reference to you know that that weird adopted half brother that you know and Kachaka it Kachaka just makes some weird choices man. Um, mm-hmm. for that weird adopted you know, white white child that, you know, happened to, you know, think he was entitled to the throne even though he wasn't. Um, but I think it's nice to kinda of have that reference there for people who know that character, um, and also know his history, um, about kind of the uh I don't remember the name of the little police the little rogue police faction that he started that, you know, T'Challa had to banish, but I think it's nice that they make that reference because, um um, Bucky's kind of similar in, in, in some of the, you know, kind of uh, uh, unsavory things <laughs> that he has done. Yeah. Uh, as an assassin, um, mm-hmm. as, you know, a hired gun um, for, you know, like, is it, you know, the Germans, the Soviets, who, who, whoever. But, yeah, like, um, yeah, I, I thought it was a clever reference. Um, and a clever Easter egg for people who do know the character. Um, I am glad it looks like he just—he looks like he's living his best life. Like his hair is laid. <laughs> looks like it's been washed a couple of times. Like his beard, like he's growing in a nice beard. Looks like they rubbed some like shea butter on it. Like he looks good. <laughs> he looks healthy. Um, Shuri obviously told us like in you know Civil War. Well, not Shuri, but Child mentioned how like they were gonna help kind of um, Bucky undo that. Um, that brainwashing, that programming that was done to him all those years over and over and over again, and it looks like kind of for the first time in Bucky's life, he's, he's going to be living a semi-normal life, you know, at least prior to Thanos coming in and kicking everybody in, but um, I thought it was, you know, some people didn't like that it was included. I thought, you know, I like Bucky and, you know, I think he lived, <laughs> he lived a hard life, so I, I, think, I thought it was nice to have him have a kind of a nice scene where like no one's chasing him, no one's trying to kill him, he's not being brainwashed to like choke somebody out. Like he's just very tranquil. He's good. He's solid. Um, kind of on the road to his own recovery and reclaiming his own agency and not being like the puppet of some other like country or shadowy um spy hydra organization. So I, I thought it was a nice thing to include. I I think that um in a really like uh I keep I keep saying things about this movie are clever um because they they really are it's actually I'll, I'll call it ingenious this time around um in I think that the white wolf easter egg is a little bit more than just like a nod to hunter from the comics I really do think that um it's telegraphing that Bucky's going through a pivotal character um shift um, within the context of his larger story. Um, he has that moment. Uh, there's that moment where Sherry calls him Sergeant Barnes. Um, and you know, he's like, no, call me Bucky. 
um, you know, he's sort of getting to a point where he's being reset, right? Like the trigger words that Hydra implanted into him, those have been removed and he's getting into a place where he's um, coming into a new identity for himself. Um, And I would not be surprised to see the white wolf um, in in the same way that like um, uh, M'Baku was really sort of like, like, like intelligently updated for the film. I think that Mm. what we might be seeing is, um, a reinvention of the white wolf character, which in the comics does like seem weird. Like, Oh, like there's a white adoptee who thinks he can claim the throne. Like, I don't need that in a movie. Yeah. Right. I don't need a movie, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right? um, but as sort of like a, how does like, who does Bucky become as he um, becomes one of the more core members of the Avengers is like, as, as we sort of look into the future of the MCU, um, you know, it's not going to be that same roster for the entire time. Um, we don't know that uh, when um, when we see Captain America in the next movie, we don't know that he's going to be Captain America as we know him. You know, the shield that we see him using is not the circular one. It's these um, these new uh, pointy Wakandan shields that like extend or some shit. Um, <laughs> and uh, there are rumors that he's going to start going by Nomad because um, I I feel like people forget like. The way Civil War ended, like Captain America was a, a war criminal, or like he was, uh, he was on the run, right? Like he's no mm-hmm. longer, you know, a symbol of America. He, you know, went against the Sokovia Accords and he's kind of on the run from the law, right? Um, and so mm-hmm. as he, you know, he is in the process of becoming a new character um, again. And Wakanda is sort of like the central force here. It is this transformative place that is really pushing these characters into a new kind of space. And I think it will be really interesting to see Bucky um, sort of uh, claim the white wolf title for himself. Um, like we know he's, we know that when he leaves Wakanda, the arm that he gets is not just going to be a regular arm. Like his, his old <laughs> arm was cute, but like this next arm is going to be like on some next level shit. Um, and, Can you, you know, imagine with- being slapped by that arm? <laughs> Oh, <laughs> you know, and with like a with a fancy Wakandan arm, I can totally see him being like, you know, I need a new code name for myself. Here's what the kids have been calling me, and that just sort of being how that character becomes um, like his new identity because he's not going to be going around calling himself the Winter Soldier, and that's just not cute. Mm-hmm. It also meant something really historically specific. Like, I was always conflicted about whether it was even okay to like use the term the Winter Soldier to describe someone who was behaving against the interests of the United States when the Winter Soldier Commission actually was about exposing the injustice of the Vietnam War. So right. I'm like super mm-hmm. happy to like not although again I think it was super well intended actually by the creators but I just ultimately think it's not a good metaphor to draw but um, uh, but yeah. yeah I feel like the opportunity to give him a different name and alias is a great one. Um, yes. And um, oh, in case anybody is wondering, I, I, one of the times I saw the movie, I brought a friend who hates superhero movies and had seen none of these, and okay. she enjoyed the movie a great deal and did not feel like she missed anything. She didn't think that there was, like, some – she wasn't confused at any point in time. Like, the movie completely stood on its own without having to have any Marvel movie knowledge or even being a fan of superhero movies. I mean, she, the only thing is, you know, when Bucky came out at the end, she was like, oh, is that somebody for the new movie? And I'm like, yes, but it's also somebody from before. But it doesn't matter. I'm so excited that you're not confused. <laughs> um, so I definitely say to folks, if, they, if you're talking to people who are wondering if they need to see other movies before this, like, no, they really don't. Like, you can just go yeah. watch Black Panther. 
Yeah. I mean, it's it's really a testament to the storytelling because it's um it is. I, I think of it as an origin film, you know, because he is, when we meet T'Challa in Civil War, technically he's not the Black Panther, technically, right? Like he's wearing the suit, he's more sort of like, um, he's, um, he's acting um, on his father's behest, because, you know, T'Chaka wasn't yeah. running around the suit anymore, um, but he, yeah, you know, this is, this is, right, <laughs> you know, the suit don't fit like it used to, um, but, uh, when we, this is an origin movie, right? Um, it is self-contained and encapsulated, but at the same time, it avoids so many of the pitfalls of an origin movie, right? Um, it very cleverly just kind of um, manages to be just connected enough to the rest of the MCU that it's like, oh well, you know, this is the world in which this 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 movie exists and takes place, but it is very much a movie that is uh, centrally focused on Wakanda itself. Well, thank you guys both for joining. Like, I could not have wished for a better dream team of people to come on the show. Um, thank I, you. Um, when we close thank up, I always you. have our guests tell our listeners where they can find you on the Internet. So, Clarkisha, where can folks find your work on the Internet? Oh, great question. I'm all over the place because I freelance. Um, so, first and foremost, you can find me on Twitter. I'm always putting up on Twitter. Um, uh, my tag is at I write all day underscore um, my work. You can see um, and have post um, the root uh, BET into the establishment um, and where your voice magazine. Um, I also have my own blog, com. Sometimes I post um, a little bit more of my incendiary, <laughs> a little bit more, more, more controversial pieces out there. Um, so yeah, that's where you can find me. I have an Instagram, but um, it's kind of shoddy. So don't go there. <laughs> Um, but yeah, this is pretty much where I, I live and exist. Yeah, on the internet. And Charles, where can, where can folks find you on the internet? Hey, um, so I am a writer at io9, where I'm writing ninety um, percent of the time. If I'm on the internet, I'm writing for io9. Uh, you can find all my work there uh, right now. Um, but if you want to follow me in uh, perhaps uh, a not professional capacity, you can find me on Twitter. Um, I'm at Charles Pulliam, Charles, you know, like Charles and Pulliam is P-U-L-L-I-A-M. Um, you know, uh, come, uh, come, come for, come for some, some jokes, some jokes and some, some news and some political opinions. Yeah. You guys are really good at Twitter and everybody should follow you there. And as for us at Graphic Policy, um, Graphic Policy, if you came to the podcast late, don't worry. You're going to be able to listen to the whole darn thing on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher uh, starting in the next couple hours. It will be available there. Um, and uh, we are going to be back actually on Monday for another episode about, about Black Panther. Um, this Monday I'm going to be joined by two folks working for racial justice organizations, uh, working for Color of Change and working for the Opportunity Agenda We'll both be talking about the movie's practical applications for activists and for organizers and what kind of activism we're seeing coming out of the Black Panther movie. Um, I know that Brett and I have been super excited to see the Wakanda the Vote hashtag and voter registration actions, the Black Panther Challenge, raising tons of money to send kids to be able to see the movie. There's just been an amazing explosion of activism around the movie, and we're going to just sort of focus on that in our next episode of the show. And then I believe the week after that, we're going to be talking about Generation X with Christina Strain, who's also a writer on the TV show The Magicians. So um, 
stay around with Graphic Policy. You can always find our stuff on graphicpolicy.com, on Twitter, or Graphic Policy. Uh, Graphic Policy is the name of the podcast. And I, myself, Ilana, I'm on Twitter all the goddamn time. Please, someone drop me. You know you can't at Ilana, E-L-A-N-A underscore Brooklyn on Twitter. And the tweet chat that we'll be doing with racial justice activists and Black Panther fans, again, is next week on Wednesday, 9 p.m., you can follow me and Graphic Policy, and you will be able to join that conversation with folks who are on the front lines of the struggle for black freedom in America and abroad. So, uh, as Brett would say, um, see you guys next week, and keep it geeky. I think we're getting close right now.